Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. You may have seen them dancing to the Bee Gees staying alive last year at the Madison Farmer's Market or in the Willie Street Fair. They're the activists of 350 Wisconsin using their creative powers to raise the alarm and galvanize action about the climate crisis. Today, we're going to meet a couple of 350 activists and pick up the conversations about climate communication and activism I started on this hour of the show in 2022. How are climate activists working this year to raise awareness and mitigate the climate crisis? And what debates are they having about the most effective strategies? What role should civil disobedience have in climate activism? And what gets people motivated to take action on climate change? Here to talk about these questions and more are two dedicated climate activists from the nonprofit organization 350 Wisconsin, whose mission is to mobilize grassroots power to change hearts and minds, laws and policies, and humanity's massive systems to make transformational progress towards environmental justice and solving the climate crisis by 2030. I'm excited to have my guests today live in the studio with me for the first time. Emily Park is communications director for 350 Wisconsin and a fossil-free fed field organizer for 350 US. Welcome to a public affair, Emily. Hi. We also have with us John Greenler. John is executive director of 350 Wisconsin and a longtime client science communicator and educator. Welcome, John. Thanks, Douglas. It's really great to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for our guests or want to share a story or idea about climate activism, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, um... We'll dig into all those debates about climate action and climate activism here as we go today. But I want to start off first, John, by having you tell us a little bit about um, your organization yes. in particular, 350, the history and purpose of 350 and what that name represents. Sure. So, yeah, a lot of good content there. Thank you. Yeah. So 350 Wisconsin is really very much a, a grassroots organization. We just have an extraordinary number hundreds of very active volunteers and then we have kind of a small cadre of staff that do a lot of work especially to support those volunteers uh, and i think i think normally when we think about volunteers we think of people about people who are just kind of following and and those are really valuable and we really have an extraordinary group of leaders who bring a lot of professional skills uh, and abilities and knowledge and i think that's one of the things that makes our organization uh, so extraordinary and exciting and really for me it you know just energizes me every day when I get up and jump to my computer and kind of get going uh, and our work is is really diverse as you mentioned in your introduction I think a lot of people know us for our public events where we're really you know using very creative and novel ways to get people to think about and engage with concerns on climate change but you know, really, in some ways, that's just you know a bit of the proverbial tip on the iceberg. We have an extraordinary group of people who are addressing state policy concerns, working with you know local municipalities uh, and cities, uh, alders and mayors, you know, and uh, you know, increasingly we do this work uh, around the states. Um, yeah, the, the number 350, I think, is a really important educational opportunity, one that I can't resist because of, in part because of my education background. So really, when we look at how much CO2, carbon dioxide, we have in the atmosphere, you know, and the scientists, when the climate scientists say, well, what's really, what's the desired number in parts per million, uh, which isn't a lot, but it's really powerful, uh, is 350 parts per million of CO2. We're well past that. We're in the 400s now, uh, and we really haven't slowed down. So it's really an acknowledgement of, 
of what we really need to get to, very much from kind of an atmospheric chemistry perspective. But clearly, the implications go so far beyond that in terms of our our ecology and our human systems, you know, just how this these greenhouse gases and their relatively small concentrations just have such a tremendous impact on our planet as a whole and here in Wisconsin as well. Thank you, John, um, for that overview. We're going to have you, uh, Emily, now tell us a little bit about 350's current campaigns, both in Wisconsin and nationally. Uh like John said, I think one of the, the strengths of 350 Wisconsin is that our campaigns encompass a really diverse range of, of areas of focus. So if you are someone who likes to work uh, with the people in positions of power, people in government, we've got a community climate solutions team, and they are working on a lot of really great local renewable energy projects. Um, and then if you're someone who likes to work a little bit with uh Maybe let's say the, the spicier side of things. We've got our, our tar sands team that is actively working to resist Line 5, <laughs> the tar sands pipeline in northern Wisconsin that also goes to the Straits of Mackinac. And we also have our Divest into Fund team, which is really focused on ending the money pipeline that goes from banks and major financial institutions to these oil and gas companies because these projects like Line 5 can't happen without major underwriting from the banks. And ultimately, if you are a customer at one of these banks, that is your money that is going to finance the climate crisis. Yeah, that Divest and Defund campaign has been particularly active here in Wisconsin, right, Emily? Um, Tell us more about what this campaign's demand is and why you think this campaign matters. Right. So it's like I said, you know, these these massive projects like the these pipelines and these, you know, new new areas of extraction, they can't happen without funding from the banks. And if there's anything that people in power listen to, it, it's money. And a lot of people don't realize if they've got their money in Chase Bank, Citibank, Wells Fargo, it's that's that's their money going to these these projects. And so what we are trying to do is telling to tell these banks that they have a duty to their customers, their everyday customers, to look out for their customers' financial well-being, but also the well-being of our communities, our nation, our planet. Because without healthy communities, we as a country are not going to be financially, economically sound, and it's we're going to just keep perpetuating systems of injustice. So that's what our the the core of what our divest into fund team is, is working on is convincing these these banks that there are. There are ways that they can make money and benefit their shareholders if they are looking at a green, sustainable, just economy. So you're asking them to withdraw all funds from fossil fuel companies or fossil fuel expansion or, or what exactly? Ultimately, yes. I mean, we, we understand it's not going to happen overnight. It's not uh, it's not like flipping a switch. But, you know, if, if banks like J.P. Morgan Chase want to say that they are uh, interested in sustainability, they could be putting more, 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 always more money into the solu- the sustainable solutions that that we need. Like, um, you know, I think a lot of people want to be able to make sustainable solutions in their day to day lives, but for a lot of people, an electric vehicle is just out of reach price wise. Or, you know, the su- the sustainable products that you would buy at the grocery store, those are often quite a bit more expensive. And so, what we need is we need for the financial institutions to make uh, investments into developing affordable solutions so that everybody has the option to make these these good choices um, because it's it can be expensive to be sustainable. And in the meantime, um, the big banks like Chase, for example, is the largest funder of fossil fuel expansion, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, still today, um, we can see their operations everywhere in our neighborhoods, in our communities as uh, having, as one writer recently put it, little smokestacks coming yeah. out of the of their roofs, right? That these um, organizations, these companies are facilitating um, the speed up of carbon emissions, right? So what specific actions are you calling for this year, let's say? Um, what, what are you working on on the ground to make happen this year to draw attention to those smokestacks? sticking out of the the Chase and the Wells Fargo banks? Uh, Well, we're going to definitely be keeping up our uh, pressure on Chase Bank. Locally, we focus on Chase Bank because they do have um, a pretty solid presence here in the Madison area where most of our membership are. Um, But we're also part of this larger coalition um, called Stop the Money Pipeline, which, as the name implies, is focusing on ending the flow of money to fossil fuel 
infrastructure. And part of that campaign is this new campaign called uh, Customers for Climate Justice. So if you are an active customer at Chase, at Wells Fargo, at Citibank, um, you know, schedule a meeting with your local branch manager and say, hey, I am concerned about how you are using my my savings fund, my retirement, my child's college fund uh, to, you know, directly profit from the climate crisis. Meanwhile, people who are the most economically disadvantaged um, and also traditionally BIPOC neighbor neighborhoods, uh, frontline communities are the ones that are suffering the most and are not je- getting any of the profits that, that Chase is seeing from oil and gas infrastructure. So you're not necessarily asking people to withdraw their money from these banks. You think it can be productive to dialogue and put pressure on uh, the banks as well? I think it's an and type of situation, okay. right? So, I mean, especially if you do have, you know, an account at Chase, probably a good idea in the long run to, you know, to find a more sustainable financial institution that you could be working with. And before you, you know, before yeah. you move, take advantage of that relationship and really send a strong message that you, you know, that's possible for you as a, you know, as a customer. So I think, I think there are all those options are on the table. We're talking about climate activism and approaches to climate activism and communication here on A Public Affair today. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Emily Park, Communication Director of 350 Wisconsin, and John Greenler, Executive Director of 350 Wisconsin. We'd love to hear from you here on A Public Affair. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out on Facebook. So we're going to pick up uh, our conversation here about campaigns. And there's another one that you're working on, in particular, Emily, called Fossil Free Fed. Um, And people might not know much about the relationship between the Federal Reserve and um, climate change. So fill us in a little bit about that. Right. So I was saying, you know, we've been doing a lot of work trying to get these banks and major financial institutions to stop investing in the climate crisis. Um, but, you know, ultimately they are looking at their short term profits. So they're, they're not listening to us in the way that we would like. Uh, and the, the Federal Reserve is the United States Central Bank. So kind of think of them as the referee of our economy. And their job is to make sure that the United States um, financial system stays stable so that we don't slip into another you know, major depression. Um, and so ultimately, the, the Federal Reserve has the authority to tell banks that certain areas of investment are inherently damaging and threatening to the United States economy. And our argument is that there is nothing that poses a larger long-term threat to our economic viability than the climate crisis. I mean, just look at the, the trillions of dollars that people are losing to natural disasters or you know, the, the, the health effects of the climate crisis and any other number of things that, that we could list. So we're asking the Federal Reserve to step in and uh, make the changes that we need to see from the financial institutions. Yeah, and this, this isn't really a, you know, an edgy ask. In fact, when we look at the European Union, for example, most of the equivalents of the Federal Reserve are very much on board and taking these kinds of steps. And we're really, you know, here in the United States, lagging behind. Our government needs to step up. And there's some great examples of how to do that. This isn't, you know, this isn't like a new big deal or something. This isn't edgy. This mm-hmm. is standard practice in much of the rest of the world. So what are some of the ways that 350 is working right now to make that happen? Um, for the the Federal Reserve uh, campaign right now, it's it's actually an amazing moment in time. They uh, have a, fu- a public comment period. They are actually asking for people to submit comments on their draft of recommendations for how banks might address the climate crisis. Uh, right now, the recommendations they're proposing are just that. They're recommendations. They're not requirements. There are no teeth behind them, and they're very lacking in specificity, and and, um, there's not an aggressive timeline. So what we are doing is we are calling for people to submit comments to the Federal Reserve saying we expect expect more, we expect better. and uh, it's it's been pretty amazing. Usually the Federal Reserve does not get a lot of comments from everyday people. They get comments from you know the the bankers, the powerful. But already we've generated, I think, um, <laughs> over twelve thousand signatures from just or uh, comments from just everyday people saying we expect more from the Federal Reserve. Um, we've even set up a website that makes it easy for people to submit a comment. You don't have to know the ins and outs of monetary policy. Um, so there's the website's. Uh, 350.org slash federal 
dash reserve dash public dash comment. Sorry, kind of a long URL. Um, but there's a comment there that you could just hit submit or you can type in your own stories of how the climate crisis is affecting you economically. Before we shift into talking a little bit more about tactics, um, I want to continue our overview of some of your big campaigns. And I know we were talking a little bit about elections before, and that, that was prominent on your website as well. Tell us uh, about uh, 350's election work right now. Um, people might not have in mind this is a big election year, but yet there are elections upcoming, right? Yeah, this is a, a really important uh, election year that we have upon us. And, and, you know, about a year ago, 350 Wisconsin really recognized how important our electoral system is in terms of our ability to really make change uh, in consideration of the climate. Uh, so we actually started a separate organization, 350 Wisconsin Action, uh, to really allow us to fully be more involved uh, in the political arena. And, you know, we have a couple a couple goals, you know, with that. One is clearly, you know, very directly to make sure as much as possible that we elect politicians that are climate concerned, considerate, and ready to take action to ready, ready to do uh, to do the work that needs to be done. But then also very much just making sure that climate is a part of the conversation that we need to have that needs to be every ever present, uh, you know, in all dimensions, including uh, with our elected officials, climate and really climate justice very much as well. So uh, we really stepped up to the plate with the fall elections. And I think we had some significant successes. We learned a lot. You know, we're, we're involved a lot of different tactics. Um, and in some ways, that was a bit of an easier situation because I think people are very aware of these midterm elections. It's really on a lot of people's radar screens. Uh, but coming up for us now this spring uh, are these state Supreme Court elections. We have an open seat in our state Supreme Court, which right now is very much kind of conservative uh, in its structure. Uh, but this one open seat would allow us to swing to a more progressive uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and the implications uh, with this are, are really multifaceted. Um, there, and there's a lot on the table for, you know, considerations ranging from, you know, the fact that I think we're all aware of how gerrymandered our state is, really how we are missing out on the democratic you know, approach uh, and and potential that we have by having such gerrymandered district lines. Democratic uh, small D, you're saying. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, thank you very much for pointing that out. Uh, clearly, you know, we have issues of, of reproductive rights, which are very much front and center, you know, in our state as well. Um, and then, you know, by if 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 our legislature you know was fair and just we would have so much more potential to be addressing climate change so this really comes home for us the opportunity to have a legislature that would be uh, able to be more considerate of the significant and timely needs that we have around climate the other thing which i think people are just becoming fully aware of is how there's uh, there's movement happening right now in our legislature, uh, and it really tethers to uh, our Supreme Court to further limit the ability of a number of uh, our state institutions to address climate change. The Department of Natural Resources is a really good example of that, and there are others. So probably aware of what happened with the EPA uh, last year in terms of the federal government really kind of limiting their abilities uh, to address climate change. And, and the Biden administration has worked hard to figure out ways to work around that. But it was a real limitation of the tools that we have available to us. And there's now a very similar situation, which is rising up here uh, in the state. And we really need to make sure that our DNR really has, our Department of Natural Resources has the capability to be able to very directly address uh, climate change here uh, in the state. And, and we really need to have a Supreme Court uh, that isn't, you know, stacked uh, in a way that, uh, you know, it doesn't pick up on, on these kinds of considerations, which really uh, are very much present on the minds of people in the state. Uh, so, yeah, we need to have a fair a fair process for that. And this is an exceptional opportunity. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a primary coming up uh, February 21st. Uh, and I, you know, it's so important that people come out to vote for that. Uh, and 
because that will really set the stage for the for the main election on April fourth uh, as well to really bring in a new uh, a new judge uh, on our state supreme court. So, and if you if folks are interested in that, there's you know there's two websites for us. There's you know three fifty Wisconsin dot org, and then there's three fifty Wisconsin Action dot org, and it's that second one which will really allow people to get the information about. Uh, our political system and how it relates to climate change and what the opportunities are to uh, to be involved in, and address these concerns. That's John Greenler, Executive Director of 350 Wisconsin. Here on A Public Affair, we're also talking with Emily Park today, who is Communication Director for 350 Wisconsin. And we're talking about climate activism this year. Uh, campaigns happening to address the climate crisis and tactics for climate action and ways to communicate about climate action. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or reach out on Facebook. So let's turn towards that conversation about tactics a little bit and the conversations that you all are so involved in in your work about what is an effective way mm-hmm. to not only gain public attention but to make change right get action absolutely um, one of the striking things about 350's work here in wisconsin is its use of dance and street theater and music and art to engage the public uh we're going to play a little clip to give everybody out there a little taste of this here momentarily it's a recording of an action called the wedding of tar sands and chase bank that 350 Wisconsin did at the Madison Farmer's Market on August 23rd, 2021. And uh, let me just set this up for you. So you're going to, you can imagine out there folks watching um, uh, a uh, woman dressed in a dark black dress representing the Tar Sands and a Chase Banker with Chase Bank's logo on his back standing on one of the steps of the Capitol um, across the street from Chase Bank, uh, up on the square, on the Capitol Square, with uh, Farmer's Market folks uh, milling about and walking by. So here's a clip of this uh, little street theater that 350 Wisconsin put on to raise awareness about uh, fossil fuel financing. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together to celebrate the union of this prosperous couple, Mr. J.P. Morgan Chase and Ms. Tarsans. Billionaires, politicians, and investors have all been invited to witness and rejoice in this marriage that is so beneficial to our fossil fuel lifestyle. I am here to pledge to honor, love, and cherish my bankroller, Mr. J.P. Morgan Chase. <laughs> and I pledge to keep the oil flowing no matter how hot it gets here on Earth. <laughs> my darling, I pledge to love you, my beloved, as many billions as there are stars in the sky or shares in my portfolio or gallons of oil still left in the Kalamazoo River. Should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony? Speak now or forever hold your peace. I object. I object to this unholy alliance. J.P. Morgan Chase, stop embracing Tarzan. You should be turning towards wind and solar, not Tarzan's oil. Thank you. We appreciate your feedback. And we will take your concerns to the department where oh, oh, oh. righteous we indignation goes. To Jason Tarzan, say how you do. I'm glad that's all over I object. It's money from big banks like Chase that threatens all the human race. Thank you. We heard you, and we will also Man, take your concerns to the correct department. No more drilling on sacred land. 
That's the 350 Wisconsin Art Collective uh, performing the wedding of Tar Sands and Chase Bank at the Madison Farmers Market on August 23rd, 2021. I have with me here John Greenler and Emily Park from 350 Wisconsin, and I'd love for you both to tell us a little bit more about the 350 Wisconsin Art Collective and what the group's purpose is for tactics like this. Boy, it's it's actually pretty hard to figure out where to start on that. One comment, just you know, listening to that clip, and some people may not be aware that when we say tar sands, we're referring to the tar sands oils coming from Canada. It's a very energy intensive uh, and environmentally destructive process for actually making crude oil that provides us with the gas and the diesel, uh, et cetera. Um, really, the kind of the dirtiest of all uh, oil fuels, and so it, it's especially important. Uh, to to consider how we can really eliminate tar sands from our portfolio uh, of energy and move and move instead to all the clean energy options. So, but you know the Arts Collective is, is a really nimble and dynamic and very energized and and joyful uh, bunch of people that are really you know not going to let climate despair kind of infiltrate uh, you know into our organization, into our community, into our city and into our state and country even really. So they really are exceptionally creative and multifaceted, uh, whether it comes to street performance or some really extraordinary, uh, you know, dance events as well that we're kind of known for, to uh, puppeteering, to very creative uh, bannering. And it can look on the surface like, well, just a lot of fun and games. But the fact of the matter is the Arts Collective uh, is very serious in terms of of consideration of how best to use art to open people up to think about the significance of climate change. You know, we it's really easy to, to think that we just need more science. We need more data. We need more graphs. We need more figures to be able to really connect with people around climate change. And not that that approach isn't bad, but we really need to look at all the different ways that people hear and open up and listen to these kinds of concerns. And the Arts Collective is, is really savvy in terms of thinking about communication and how people stop and listen and go, oh, this is important and I can do something. Uh, so really, you know, anytime there's an event, we're also really, you know, right there with a whole cadre of folks who are sharing like, hey, you know, thanks for stopping, thanks for thinking, and here are the different ways that you can take action uh, as well. So they're very carefully considered in terms of what, where, when, and how, uh, and to really follow up with some very tight communications that allows us to move forward uh, to address climate change. And Emily, I'm sure you've, you know, there's more, there's, there's so, ma- so much to add on this front. I think um, <clears throat> for me, I th- when I think of the Arts Collective, I think of this banner they have that says uh, climate despair, try activism. And I think for like like John said, a lot of these people there, they are joyful people and they, they want to remain optimistic and hopeful. But looking at the news out there, it's there's a lot of, of bad news and there is a lot of reasons why climate activists might feel a sense of despair. But being able to participate in a group like the Arts Collective, I think, gives people a way to channel that despair into something something positive, uh, keep up their own mental well-being, and also contribute to a, a greater purpose. It creates a public space as well around those participants, right, that invites people into that joy. Uh, you could see in, in some of the clips, the videos posted on your website, of people smiling as they walk by or watch or laugh, right? It, it creates a tone of we're in this together, a sense of solidarity. Absolutely. It's great to see, you know, I I recognize a number of people that, you know, were at the market initially, you know, just kind of stopped in in curiosity and and, uh, just, you know, not quite knowing what was going on. Uh, And then really kind of joining us in our efforts to really broaden the, uh, you know, the the work to really do what we need to do around climate change. And our stories are really carefully balanced to, you know, to be fun and engaging, but then also to really, you know, put the put the full intensity of the message on the line, but then break the relief, you know, bring, provide some relief that so people just don't walk around, you know, walk, walk away with their heads down, that they realize that, yeah, this this is a huge issue and there are ways that we can move forward. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with John Greenler, who you just heard from, Executive Director of 350 Wisconsin, and Emily Park, Communication Director of 350 Wisconsin. We're talking about climate activism and communication. If you'd like to join us to ask them a question or share an experience or idea about climate activism, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Extension 9. We'd love to have you join us. I'm going to, as we turn towards tactics here, I'm going to mm-hmm. also invite you two to share some more of your own stories and, and motivation. And uh, you were talking about how the art collective creates this sense of joy. Um, do you two feel a sense of solidarity and joy that gives your life meaning as you have centered your lives in this work to, to create action on climate change? Emily? Absolutely. Um, I think the the nice thing about the Arts Collective is you don't have to be a, a professional artist, a professional musician to participate. They they make space for everybody. And and likewise, in the in the larger organization, we really it's we work hard to make a, a place for everybody who wants to be involved, whether that's, you know, in front of a crowd dancing or shouting into a megaphone or maybe you prefer to be more behind the scenes. Um, it just it. Like I said before, it it brings me a sense of of hope uh, to to be able to look at this group of people and see that we're all fighting for a common goal, and there's a way for everybody to participate in whatever way works for them. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the poet Amanda Gorman, and uh, she's actually written a number of you know pieces or on this topic and climate change in specific. And one of the things that and I, I wish I could be you know even just a fraction of. Uh, as eloquent as she is. But she said, you know, hope is not something you find. Hope is something you create. Uh, And it's really the creative, you know, energy uh, that's so strong in 350 Wisconsin that really allows me to keep doing this work, you know, uh, every day. Um, I just know that there are all these people that are coming together and forming community in this very creative, synthetic, dynamic fashion that uh, I really think is the solution and allows us to do. So the work that sometimes is, is pretty hard to do and face, but really, you know, the solutions are there. And what we need to do is come together to support them and 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 uh, and raise them up and and make them come into being. And, and uh, yeah, it's that collective aspect that I think is so key in that creative element as well. Yeah, and the arts collective is just you know a great kind of nucleus for us in that capacity. What you're describing in terms of the sense of community makes me think that not only you're working to repair natural systems, but repair human systems, human community as well, uh, reconnect people, reconnect the social fabric. Absolutely. You know, and one thing that that I think is so important to bring up in this is the justice element of this, that the climate change uh, is is just fundamentally uh, such a justice issue. Uh, you know, I think we become more and more aware every day of how disproportionately impacted our low-income and BIPOC communities are when it comes to climate change. And we see this globally, and we very much see this locally as well. You know, and then furthermore, just, just to... Uh, really amplify that is the fact that, you know, it's these low-income and BIPOC communities uh, and similar that are least responsible for the damage that has been created. And so, you know, when we think about that opportunity to embrace our society as a whole, um, you know, that's where we really begin to you know, approach that justice and equity component, which we, I think we all just are realizing, you know, just is is elemental. It's an intersectionality which just needs to be fully raised up and appreciated and, and addressed. I'd like to continue our conversation about tactics in a little bit different direction here as well and extend the conversation to thinking about civil disobedience, which I know is something that um, both of you have been involved in and that uh, 350 Wisconsin and 350 U.S. um, use as a tactic at different times. And there's been a larger conversation lately ongoing in uh, the climate justice movement about the role of civil disobedience as well. Uh, The big UK-based group, but worldwide group, Extinction Rebellion, Mm -hmm. recently announced that they're halting disruptive protests this year, which they kind of became known for, made their name with, like big roadblocks and things, primarily due to public disapproval of of civil disobedience and, and public disruption. 
as a tactic. Um, what's your response to that decision? And also, um, where is uh, 350 Wisconsin in terms of thinking about public disruption and civil disobedience as a tactic right now? I think that uh, the role of civil disobedience in uh, affecting change, it's, it's, it's critical because the people in power don't listen if you just write them a polite letter. Like in the, the video clip you played, you know, Chase was trying to fob people off by saying, we'll take that into consideration. So I think civil disobedience uh, is going to always be an important part of bringing about wide-scale change. Um, I think that, though, we have to be careful with when and how we use it. I think um, probably what Extinction Rebellion is, is seeing is that they were maybe doing too many uh, actions and not making a clear connection in people's minds the what this action is, why they are doing it, and and what, what they're trying to achieve. Um, I think the general public just saw them as people who are disrupting my commute to work or people who are throwing soup on famous paintings. They're, they're, people are not making the connection in their head. Why are these people risking arrest? Um, and why is it is it meaningful? So I think there was some missed messaging opportunities there. And and here we try to be, uh, you know, careful. Like we, we pick our, if we're going to do a civil disobedience, we, we pick our time and location carefully. And, you know, we, we are trying to not disrupt the average person's day-to-day life any more than we have to, but we also need to disrupt business as usual. Otherwise, uh, people in power are not going to listen. Yeah, it's it's you know clearly it's no surprise. This has been a lot of food for thought for us. You know, we've been involved in civil disobedience, nonviolent direct actions for a number of years now, uh, and you know we've all seen those statistics of the disapproval you know of folks in Europe uh, in regards to uh, you know doing uh, civil disobedience related to climate change. I think it's also worth really considering you know, what the long-term impacts of that are. And I think, you know, there's a really good history of how civil disobedience, you know, in our societies has really been kind of a key uh, element of really making a number of changes over, you know, over the years. And my guess is if we went back and looked at some of those turning points, probably the vast majority of people probably didn't approve. Uh, and it, actually, it was Emily who was saying it's kind of like nimbyism in a way. It's like, well, you know, I'm concerned about climate change. But yeah, when somebody stops my commute, you know, because uh, they're protesting climate change, then all of a sudden it's like it's in my backyard. Uh, and so I think there's like that short term response, which I think is getting a lot of publicity right now. But I think there's also it's really worthwhile considering the kind of the deeper, more fundamental uh, recognition and how we really come to stop and, and think and listen about uh, you know these types of challenges, and so yeah, I think you know it, being really careful and considered about how civil disobedience is done, but then very much you know from inception thinking about how is this utilized in a way to communicate and engage uh, the you know the broad populace that we really need to uh, to to be able to do to address this issue in the very timely fashion that's needed. So could you give us an example of a, a previous or upcoming action, I guess, if you're willing to share, uh, experience of where you th- you saw those elements really coming together, the uh, disruption of business as usual, and that larger message that you were trying to convey? Yeah, so I think the, the first act of civil disobedience that I participated with, at the time we were 350 Madison, now we're 350 Wisconsin, um, was in summer of 2019. And we had been doing these actions outside of Chase Bank on the square. Um, and, you know, we we did like the usual things with signs, chants, rallies, songs, but we had always stayed outside. And and then, you know, we realized that Chase was just in the habit of ignoring us. They, you know, they they, they could just pretend that we weren't there. And so we, we escalated and we had a group of uh, four, six of us, I don't remember. Um, we went into the bank and we just sat down in the lobby of the Chase branch. And um, if you've ever been into the downtown Chase branch, it's quite small in the lobby. And so we took up a lot of space and we had um, different things that we were reading, like uh, poetry or some people read a prayer or just something that was meaningful to them. And so we were we were noisy and we were in the way, but technically they could have kept content- conducting business if they'd wanted to. But um, we, we did disrupt their, their day of business and they ended up having to call the police and we were we were ticketed and then, you know, escorted 
from the building. Uh, meanwhile, we had our, our normal rally going on outside so people could see outside what we were doing. And then we were also doing this this action inside the bank. John? Yeah, you know, another good example, and Emily might feel, you know, you know, a little, uh, hopefully it's okay if I'm telling a story that's primarily about her, but uh, yeah. in her capacity doing Federal Reserve work, Federal Reserve work for uh, for 350 U.S. Uh, was actually uh, at Jackson Hole several months ago, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for the annual uh, Fed Reserve meetings there. And, um, you know, it wasn't a complete accident that uh, Jerome Powell happened to be uh, at a restaurant at the same time that a number of 350 activists were there. And they were very Federal polite. Reserve chairman. Jerome Powell, yes. the, ch- the, chair, yeah, the chair of the Fed Reserve. Exactly. And they were very polite. They let him finish his meal. And then uh, they attempted to engage him in a conversation about climate change in a very polite way. Uh, needless to say, he wasn't really that interested in having a, a, a conversation. Uh, and so he left and a, a banner was unfurled. And uh, the I don't know how many of you were there, six or eight or something that were there actually got got ticketed for uh, for this action and got a fair amount of publicity from it. Uh, you know, some social media content went viral and whatnot. Um, and so that got some significant publicity. But I think a really good example on the communications front was the next day, this really, the press really became aware of this, and uh, there was actually a press event that the, the 350 was was running the next morning, uh, and a national public radio uh, reporter was there and interviewed uh, Emily and some others, ended up on top of the hour national public, uh, you know, morning uh, news. And so all of a sudden, you know, our whole country was hearing about the role of the Federal Reserve in terms of funding uh, uh, fossil fuels. And so I think that's just a really good example of that amplification potential that we have uh, towards some of these types of disruptive actions. Is there anything you want to add about the story, Emily? Yeah, I think it really highlights the need to, when you see a moment for action, be nimble enough to take it. Because we, the reason why we had this banner with us is because <clears throat> we had been taking photos around the, the Jackson Hole uh, and Grand Teton area um, in preparation for this rally we were going to be having at this this big economic symposium. And so we just happened to have this banner with us. And then we were eating in the restaurant at the main lodge in Grand Teton National Park. And um, if you're not familiar with the Jackson, Wyoming community, it is one of the most economically um, polarized parts of the country. Like there are very, very, very extremely wealthy people. And then, you know, the service workers who are barely scraping to get by. So it was a, an interesting backdrop. And we literally, it was actually purely chance that we were seated next to next to Jerome Powell. Like I could have reached out and tapped him on the shoulder if I'd wanted to. Um, and yeah, so like John said, we we let him finish his meal. They were They were getting up getting ready to leave when we when we approached them and uh it was the part where we unfurled the banner that we had with us and also live streamed it to twitter that that (laughs) that they didn't like but we got a lot of we got criticism from people saying this is not the this economic symposium is not the right place to approach the federal reserve but the fact of the matter is the federal reserve is extremely removed from the public there aren't other opportunities and so if you see an opportunity you have to take it and um people are like well jerome powell deserves to to have dinner in peace like he ate his dinner in peace, but if you are a public figure making decisions that impact everybody, and remember this was right around the time that inflation was front and center in everybody's minds, and he was saying, you know, I'm going to raise interest rates and it's going to hurt people, but so be it. So if you're going to be a public figure, then you should expect to be approached in public, is, is my opinion. And that, that criticism is an old one, right? It reminds me of Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail mm-hmm. and quoting you know, the clergy there in Birmingham who said, you know, don't make a fuss. This isn't the right time. You have to choose your time and place. And that's always going to be an argument of those in power, right, that that say uh, you're, you're not doing this right. Yeah. Recently, Jerome Powell actually gave a speech where he actually used the phrase that the Federal Reserve needs to stick to its knitting. That's the exact phrase he used uh, with regards to why he doesn't think they should take action on on climate change. Um, but, you know, we obviously disagree. <laughs> so when we have the chance to speak out, we we should take it. We're talking about climate action here on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Emily Park and John Greenler of 350 Wisconsin. There's still time to give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation. 608-256-2001 
extension nine. So much we could talk about here in our, our last 10 minutes, but I'd Absolutely. love to continue this conversation uh, thinking about what makes climate action successful or not successful. Mm -hmm. And it seems like um, thinking about long term and short term are a big part of that uh, conversation as well. Uh, in your experiences, what would you count as successful or not successful? And then how do you put that in that long term view of creating social change? Wow, there's there's a lot to unpack there, Douglas. Yeah. That's great. That's a really it's a really good thought provoking question, and and we really, you know, are really looking constantly for like how do we measure success and how do we define success? And it's tricky because there are some things that we can do where we can really kind of, you know, in a kind of a turnstile type of way, really kind of click off numbers. And those are really tempting and enticing just to like focus on on that. It's like, well, how many signatures did we get uh, for a ballot or things like that? And we definitely do all of that. And we've got some pretty good numbers to show that, you know, we're really making progress and, and they're and they're really important. So Emily, you know, pointing out the numbers of people that are, you know, that are currently making comments to the Federal Reserve on climate. Uh, but it's also really important for us to recognize that a lot of things that need to happen take time. People need to hear these messages and have these considerations uh, in multiple ways over, you know, over a period of time before they really feel like, oh, here's something I can do and I feel safe doing it. I understand why I'm doing it. Uh, and I'm going to have the conversations that aren't always comfortable. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. Uh, and, you know, one way that we see that that I think is really exciting is just, you know, the ever-increasing number of people that volunteer uh, to do, you know, the work that needs to be done. Um, you know, being, I kind of like to consider myself to be kind of a client scientist, scientist on strike. And so I'm, I'm still a data dweeb, actually both Emily and I are, uh, you know, at heart. And there's a great program called the, the Yale Climate Communication Program from out of Yale University, where they really drill into a lot of the social science data. And it's really fascinating. You know, they kind of talk about the six Americas uh, in relationship to climate change, ranging from people who are alarmed uh, or concerned to people who are really dismissive. Um, and when they look at the about about a third of our country are currently alarmed around climate, uh, and and so that that's great. It's okay. People are really you know going okay. You know this is this is something that's important. What I think is is maybe even more interesting is when you they begin to drill in with those people. Most of them, the vast majority of them, have no idea about what they can do, how they can be involved. And, I, you know, we're a very individualistic country in a lot of ways from a societal perspective. And it's great that we think about, well, how can I reduce my personal carbon footprint? And those are important, you know, ways that we can fly less, that, you know, maybe we could, you know, make our houses more efficient, switch to a heat pump, et cetera. But really it's become increasingly clear that it's the collective efforts that make the difference. You know, I can't take mass transit to Chicago unless someone lays down the rails and, and brings in those high-speed trains or whatever. And that really is only going to come to be through larger collective social change. And providing ways, you know, that people can see how important that is and ways that, you know, they really feel like they can take action, I just think is increasingly important. And it's hard to measure that. Uh, you know, we're, it's, it's a nonlinear kind of, it's a little cliche, but tipping point type of a situation. And we just have to have faith that we're doing this work and that, you know, as we've seen in the past, things seem intractable for so long and then click, uh, things change. And I really think there's a lot to indicate that we are in that position. And how do we really make sure that we're a part of setting the stage for that? Emily? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what success as climate activists would look like um, when I think of us as 350 Wisconsin, as an organization, we are, you know, John and I are staff and it's a volunteer led organization. And I think if if we are creating an environment where the average person can feel a sense of agency and fighting their sense of climate despair, I think that is a major thing that will look like success for me. Um, and, you know, whatever that way of participating looks like for that individual. Um and then, you know, as, as a climate movement, I'm, I'm really um, inspired by the, the very intersectional direction that climate activism is moving and just making everybody aware of how the climate, the climate crisis is connected to so many different 
crises happening, you know, economic, uh, reproductive rights, racial justice, all these all these issues that are front and center in people's minds are related to each other. And if we can make it clear that we're not just talking about 350 parts per million carbon dioxide, we're not just talking about polar bears, we're talking about, you know, the just the, the very basis of our society and, and human rights. Um, and as I think that as that becomes clearer in people's minds, I think that is what is going to help us succeed. We have a whole uh, uh, climate justice team. We, a lot of our work is done kind of in teams. So we've talked about divest into fund, for example, and our arts collective is another team. We have a whole climate justice team. And, and so much of the work that they do is just really about reaching out into those intersectionalities, not even necessarily talking about climate, but how can we really be involved and support all the justice organizations that are in our communities, that in our in our states, so that we just really make sure that we're connecting, we're supporting that kind of larger universe of all these concerns that are currently on the table today. Any upcoming events that you want to uh, make people aware of here, either short term or over the coming year? Yeah, actually. Um, so earlier, I, I alluded to this Customers for Climate Justice campaign, where we're having people who are active customers of these major banks that are funding fossil fuels, how they can meet with their their bank managers. And so tonight, actually, at 7 p.m., we're having a Zoom meeting about how you, as a customer, can talk to your bank manager in a really, in a friendly but productive way. Um, so if you go to our website, 350wisconsin.org, there's information about that. So it'll be a just a quick training on on how you can talk to your your bank. Um, and, you know, customer can mean a lot of things. Like I have a, a Chase credit card I never use, but it's my oldest credit card. So I can't close it because it'll kill my credit score or something. And or, you know, maybe you have a mortgage through Chase and that's not easy to get rid of. Um, so that but that makes makes you count as a customer of Chase Bank. So we encourage you to uh, join us and find out how you can talk to your your bank manager. Yeah, and the other one I'll add on to here is, once again, as we talked about earlier, the importance of these upcoming elections. So 350 Wisconsin Action, uh, so 350wisconsinaction.org. We're currently looking for volunteers to really help in a number of different ways to, you know, to really uh, move forward with these this upcoming election for the state Supreme Court position, actually also our mayoral election didn't quite get that right, but our, the election for our next mayor, uh, our alders, et cetera. And we really take a whole different range of approaches in terms of addressing, uh, you know, these elections from, you know, phone banking to writing postcards uh, to canvassing uh, to working with students. The list goes on. So if you're at all inclined, please go to our 350 Wisconsin Action website and you can sign up there uh, to be a volunteer. And we'll keep people updated on just, yeah, there's a place for everybody. So between our two organizations. Thank you. That's John Greenler, Executive Director of 350 Wisconsin. And I've also been talking with Emily Park of 350 Wisconsin, Communication Director. Um, thank you so much for being with me today, live in the studio. Glad to have folks here. And I could so sense the joy and the energy you get from your work with each other and with your volunteer community. Um, and thank you for sharing that with us today, both of you. Thanks, John. Thank you, Douglas. Really great. And thanks, Emily. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, you've been listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Sholly, as ever, for your help. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted